We're reading Psalm 48. Psalm 48. So I'll read and Dan will read and you follow in your Bible and uh, let's enjoy this psalm together. Uh, Psalm 48. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror, trembling seized them. There, pain like that of a woman in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go round her, Count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. John, we're so glad that you can join us. We're coming to you now. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My only sadness is that I can't be there with you in person to share a coffee with many of my local friends. Uh, Jenny joins me in uh, sending our greetings to you all and hopefully we'll be uh, meeting with you on Zoom tonight. I don't know how you feel about the world at the moment, but it feels to me that it's become a a much less secure place. It's not just about the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Politically, things are much less certain than they once were. Uh, We have the West at odds with Russia and at odds with China. Uh, We've got still the situation in the Middle East. And there are so many things, both at a personal level and at a, a national level and a church level, that might tend to rob us of our sense of security. So I wonder, where is it that we today find our sense of security? Uh, For some of us, it uh, tends to be in the things we own. Uh, I made the mistake this week of checking out what my pension funds were doing. And uh, surprise, surprise, they're not doing uh, quite as well as they were. So is that where my security sits? I think not. Uh, Does security sit in sort of political stability? Well, if it does, um, we're in an uncertain place right now. 
And in, in this series that we're doing in, in the Psalms, we come now to Psalm 48. And one of the big things about Psalm 48 is security. And where do we find our security as the people of God? Uh, we had it read to us uh, earlier on. And uh, you'll recall that it just starts out by describing who God is and what God has done. And it then goes on throughout the psalm to outline how we respond to this God. So let's take a look at it. Psalm 48 doesn't give us everything there is to be said uh, about God. Uh, It gives us quite a bit, but there's much more that we could say. We won't do all that this morning. We'll just deal with what Psalm 48 says. And first of all, we'll look at the great God. And then we'll begin to see how this great God becomes our God. And as we look at a great God, we'll think about who God is and how the psalmist describes him. And what God has done and how the psalmist uh, describes that. You'll remember that last week Andy explained that uh, these psalms here were, were psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. Uh, And the sons of Korah, way back in their history, had a degree of shame and a degree of insecurity. But they didn't let that stop them uh, praising God. Anyway, here they are. They're they're, they're praising God. And they they start out just, great is the Lord. Um, That's where it starts. And that's where uh, they're going to uh, finish off. Now, now great's an interesting term, isn't it? We, we throw the term great around, but I wonder what we really mean when we say that something is great. We sort of think it's something that's enjoyable or something that's a bit beyond. Uh, but actually the term, certainly when it's used of God, implies so much more than that. It's talking about the value which we place on God. It's talking about the stature that God has. It, it, it's making the point that really... There is no one like God. We can never fully understand God or grasp who he is. And yet, at the heart of it, there is this great God who is beyond our understanding. When the psalm talks there in verse 1 about God being holy, part of what being holy means is that God is very different to us. He's wholly other. And when we come to God... We're coming to one who is so much greater than we can ever imagine. When we come to God, it evokes within us a sense of awe and wonder. You know, there are some experiences in life which just leave us bowled over with a sense of awe. Uh, Jenny and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary with a road trip in the States. I was out there for a convention and she flew out and joined me and we drove from Denver to San Francisco and took in just about every tourist experience along the way, one of which was the Grand Canyon. And when we parked the car and we walked to the the canyon rim and you see pictures and you see films but nothing quite prepares you for the reality and you just step out there and it's one of those great wow moments because there is something awe-inspiring about such a a large canyon and such a deep cleft in the ground. And there are many other experiences that I think we could describe in life as awe-inspiring. But coming to God caps all of that. 
that the Grand Canyon is as nothing compared to God. So the sense of awe that we feel at the Grand Canyon, or the sense of awe that we feel uh, when we're sort of looking up at the uh, north face of the Eiger and the Merck and the Jungfrau, these are nothing compared to that sense of awe and wonder that we feel in the presence of this great God. And he's a great king. And Andy spoke about this a little bit uh, last week, and we'll touch on it again as we go through. But his whole nature is that he reigns, and he reigns in power, and he reigns in glory, and he reigns in majesty. Uh, In verse 8, it talks about the Lord Almighty, and this is uh, the Lord of hosts. And again, Andy last week just uh, spoke about that. It just implies that God is in charge of all that goes on. And whatever comes our way, and however we may react to it, remember this, that God is always in charge, is always in control. He is the great king. Now, there's another little thing in here that uh, some of you may have found a little bit puzzling, particularly if you're using uh, a different version to the New International Version. The New International Version, in verse 2, talks about... uh, Zion uh, being beautiful, uh, like the heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion. And if you've got uh, some other versions, uh, English Standard Version for instance, or perhaps the old uh, King James, you'll find that that talks about the north here uh, rather than Zaphon. Now why is this? Well, Zaphon is a mountain right up in the north. It now stands just inside Turkey, on the borders of Turkey and Syria. And Zaphon, in the thinking of the ancient Canaanites, the people who inhabited the land before Israel came, Zaphon was seen to be the home of the gods, and particularly the god of Baal. And those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament history will know that uh, the god Baal, who was worshipped by the local Canaanites, was a real thorn in the side of the Israelites. All too often, they turned from the worship of God to the worship of Baal. So, what this psalm is doing here is making a profound theological point. The the reality is that in terms of height, Zaphon is is more than twice the height of the mountain on which Jerusalem stands. So this is not a point about relative heights, but it's a point about relative importance. The point here is that Zaphon may be, in Canaanite thinking, the place where Baal lives, but Zion is the place where God lives, and therefore it's much higher, it's much bigger, it's much greater. And beside him, all other things that we worship pale into insignificance. And the point is, it's just futile to worship things other than God, whether it's a a sort of idol, uh, as Baal would have been represented, or whether it's some of the things that today take up our time and attention. Either way, it is just futile to worship things other than God. So God is great. He's the great king. He's the almighty one. He's the Lord of hosts. And he's the one who trumps all other gods. Beside him, they are absolutely nothing. But then, if we go on, the 
psalmist or psalmists because this is sons of Korah and maybe it was a sort of joint venture in writing this psalm they talk about God's holy mountain Zion beautiful in its loftiness why is Zion beautiful? it's beautiful because God is there and this reminds us that God himself is beautiful and that's not something we often think about we think about God creating beauty but we don't think about him as beautiful in and of himself. And he is. And that's what this psalm tells us, that God is something beautiful. Now, you know the sorts of things that we find uh, beautiful in life. Uh, it'll be different for each of us. But those things that are just heart-achingly beautiful. Uh, it, it may be a bit of music. And of course, we'll all have different musical tastes. But... Uh, there, there are some bits of music that just capture us and they, they transport us somewhere and they're beautiful. Or it may be that you're gazing at a, a wonderful mountain vista and that's beautiful. Or, or it may be that you're looking into the depths of a flower uh, and seeing all the intricate detail and that's beautiful. All of that is beautiful because God made it that way because he in and of himself is beautiful and is desirable and is valuable. That's, that's what this psalm is saying. God is desirable. And if our desire is set on anything other than God, then we've put it in the wrong place. But then, go on. And if you look at verses uh, 10 and 11, you find that God is righteous. Now, I guess if you're anything like me, you often feel that the world in which we live is not particularly fair. But when verses 10 and 11 talk about God's righteous and talk about God's judgments being just, what they're saying is that, no, the world may not be fair because it's fallen away from what God intended it to be, but God is always fair. The decisions he makes are the right decisions. And they're made, and this is the key thing about righteousness, they're made in the interests of the people he loves. Because righteousness is a term that sort of sits within a relationship. So, though we often feel that life isn't fair, and it isn't, God in and of himself is always righteous and just and fair and he always does the right thing, and he always does the right thing for his people. Uh, and there's more, because if we look into verse 9, we find that God is described as having unfailing love. Now, this is a Hebrew word that's not always uh, particularly easy to translate. Uh, some of the older versions use steadfast love. But it's a word that implies a deep sense of personal commitment. God is committed to his people in this sort of love. Uh, another way of looking at it would be to use the word covenant. This is covenant love where God binds himself to us with a solemn agreement. That's the nature of his love and that's the nature of his relationship with us. He always remains true to us and to what he is. We may fail him, we do, frequently, but he will never turn away from us. His love is unfailing. Even when he has to uh, discipline us in some way, uh, and Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us that he does, 
Even when he does that, the reality is that he does it out of his unfailing love. So that's what God is like. So what does God do? Well, uh, it gives security. Uh, Verse 3, God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. Uh, And this is where we come back to that ultimate sense of security. Our security is found in God. He's our fortress. Now, ancient cities were built with solid ramparts, big thick walls, so that enemies couldn't get in. Uh, And that's the picture here, that God is our protection in times of difficulty, in times of challenge, in times of opposition. Uh, Then it was very much about the physical enemies of Israel. Now it's much more about the spiritual attack that we face. But it's also about the insecurity of our world. And we turn from the insecurity of our world to find security in God. And then if you look at verses 4 to 7, what we find is that actually God gives the victory. The enemies come, they attack, but they see God and they see the city and they realise that actually there's nothing at all that they can do. And again, as Andy reminded us last week, God always has the final word. God always wins the victory. Uh, I was speaking at, at a church last week, well, I was speaking by Zoom at a church last week, and we were actually looking at Jesus, the victor. And we looked at a passage in Revelation, not the easiest book in the Bible, but we looked at Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus rides out, and has the final triumph over all the forces of evil and death and darkness and sin. Everything that would oppose his purposes, everything that would drag us down, is finally defeated by Jesus himself and by the word of truth which he speaks. So he wins the victory. And then, (coughs) finally, in verse 14, God guides. And isn't life confusing sometimes? And doesn't it leave us wondering what on earth is going on? God is our guide through all the confusion and the difficulty and the pain and the uncertainty of life. Sometimes, if you're going into territory you don't know, it's good to have a guide. One who will lead the way who will show us the way, someone who's been there before. If you're going up some uh, tricky mountain paths, a guide will show you the way. Go without a guide and you may take a wrong turning, uh, you may get lost, you, you may end up in a situation that you can't get out of. So a guide is absolutely necessary within the confusion of the life that we face. And God is our guide. So, that's what God is like. That's what God does. Now we come to the really amazing thing. And it's there in that last verse. For this God is our God. You catch that? Our God. There is a deep, close relationship with this amazing, powerful, mighty God. We are invited to... Name him as our God. And of course, 
For us as Christians, looking back, we can see that even more clearly because we see exactly what God did in Jesus. And one of the names that's given to Jesus is the name Emmanuel. And you know what that means? It means God with us. So here, in Jesus, we are invited into this close relationship with God. We're invited to make him our God. Right at the start of uh, God's journey with the people of Israel, he said, I will be your God. What an amazing promise that is. I will be your God. And that's precisely what he says to us. I will be your God. And in Jesus, as he comes to us, as he takes human flesh, as he walks the streets and the fields and the paths of ancient Israel, so we see so much more what God is like and so we understand how we enter into relationship with him. And ultimately, of course, we do that through his death and resurrection. We understand that God is not remote, he is not distant, he's there, right there with us. He is our God. So how do we respond to some of that? <coughs> well, there are a number of things that the psalm talks about in terms of responding to God. The first thing is that we meditate in verse 9. And this simply means that we fill our minds with the truth of who God is. There are so many things that come to us and fill our minds these days. So many challenges. But if we fill our minds with God, if we think about him, if we meditate on him, if we make him the centre of our thoughts, then we will experience the nature of that relationship and the closeness that we have with him. And that will help to give us this ultimate sense of security. This reminds us that actually all this is not about us, it's about God. And it's about how we live in relationship with God. Sometimes we have to discipline our minds because they go off in all sorts of places. Sometimes we have to make a conscious effort to focus on the right sort of things. Now, as we take God with us into the day, so we will experience uh, a sense of growing in him and a sense of seeking him. And then we rejoice. <coughs> uh, verse 11. Of course we rejoice. Why wouldn't we if this great God is our God? And God is a source of, of deep joy. Joy that's not just about a superficial happiness, but joy that is about knowing who we are and what we are and what we have in God. It becomes a source of delight to us. Uh, that perhaps takes us back to the fact that God is beautiful and we delight in this beautiful God. We rejoice in him. And that then turns itself into praise. Verse 1, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. And then again um, in 
verse 10, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Uh, And we'll see perhaps a little bit tonight how God is involved with all the world and all the nations. But praise recognises the value of God. Praise puts God in his rightful place. Praise reminds us of who he is and at the same time reminds us of who we are. We are not in control. He is. Last week, Andy spoke about uh, his time in Serbia when uh, around them things were sort of falling apart a bit and it was a a threatening situation and someone sent him uh, a recording of a, a Matt Redman song Uh, And he spoke about words in that song, there is a God to be praised. And how that brought something new into his understanding of the situation. And that's how it works. When we praise God, the the situation in which we find ourselves and the challenges of that situation begin to fade away. And then finally, uh, in verse uh, (coughs) 13, he talks about telling. This God, and the fact that he's our God, is something worth sharing with other people. It's not something we can keep to ourselves. The fact that this great, holy, almighty, beautiful, guiding, saving God is ours, is something that we have to tell to other people. We tell it on to the next generation. We tell it to those around us. We tell it to those who are not yet Christians, because it's such a wonderful truth. It's good news. The fact that we can know God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best news there is, and it's news which is worth sharing. So there we have it. A great God. A God whom we can never fully understand. Who is great, glorious, majestic, powerful. This God is our God. Let's take that into the week. Let's meditate on that. Let's rejoice in that. Let's praise him for that. And let's talk to other people about uh, what this God has done for us in making us his own. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that uh, we can recognise that uh, you are this great God, but also that in an amazing way you've invited us to enter into a deep personal relationship with yourself. We're amazed by that, but we thank you so much for it. And we thank you that today we who know and love you through Jesus can uh, rejoice in that. And if we haven't yet discovered that for ourselves, we want to pray that we might discover something more of what it means to to call you our God because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.